turn with me tonight, if you will, to, to Romans. Uh, we, I hope to pick up in the book of Amos and continue through the minor prophets. <clears throat> but I may give periodic breaks in between those. Uh, there's so much, there's a lot of similarities in the minor prophets. And so I don't want to overload you with uh, the, the, the prophet, the minor prophets condemnation of wickedness. Uh, we need to hear that and it's absolutely critical. And, and as I was talking to several of you this past week, um, it's, it's important for the believer to hear that um, because the believer by hearing that it magnifies uh, his own view of his salvation. It really magnifies the mercy of God. So, so it's a good thing for us as well. But uh, my heart was kind of drawn to Romans 12 uh, this week because I'm always encountering uh, folks and sometimes the opportunity is brief. Sometimes they're new believers uh, and they ask questions like, well, you know, what, what would you recommend? Uh, which book should I read or uh, which book of the Bible? Then they'll maybe ask for whatever additional reading outside of the Bible that I might recommend. And I'm always thinking in terms of something to give them a, a, a thorough um, but not an overwhelming, you know, treatise on something, but give them something to read and to study and to meditate and to work on applying these things in their lives. And, and Romans 12 uh, often comes to my mind in those instances because it is in many ways comprehensive, um, but it's, 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 it's general enough that the believer can take that and explore that throughout the scriptures and in prayer and in a matter of diligent application of these things uh, can really, really go a long way in their maturing and in their sanctification. So that's what it really came to mind. I want to read uh, all 21 verses and just share a few thoughts with you tonight, but let's read the word of God together. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. For through, through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you to not, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment, <coughs> excuse me, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. For just as we have many members in one body and all the members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members of it, of one another. Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly. If prophecy according to the proportion of his faith, if service in his serving or he who teaches in his teaching or he who exhorts in his exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor, not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in the spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulations, devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. 
Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he is thirsty, give him a drink, for in so doing you will heap burning coals on his head. <clears throat> then he concludes this chapter, but do not be overcome by evil, but every, overcome evil with good. Uh, you can get a feel for the reading of that, how, how expansive that is. You could, you could take each one of those statements and build a whole theology in regards to each of those statements. So that's why my heart's always inclined to point new believers and, and even uh, mature believers, remind them of this text as well. And that's kind of what I'm doing uh, here tonight as well. I just want to share a few thoughts with you. If you go back into chapter 11, uh, he's just finished from verse 25 downward. He's uh, speaking there in regards to the Jews uh, and their hardness. He says in verse 25, I don't want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery so that you will not be wise in your own estimation that the partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved. Just as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. If you come down to, to verse 33, uh, verse 32, he says there in speaking of Gentiles and Jews, for God has shut up all in disobedience so that he may show, here it is, mercy to us all. And then Paul exalts in, in verse 33, and I, I love this passage, but you can almost feel the heart of Paul here as he's contemplating this extraordinary, mysterious mercy of God. But he says here, oh, the depth of the riches both of wisdom and knowledge and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable are his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord who became his counselor or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. And he concludes, so be it. And then he picks right up in, in verse tw chapter 12, which is not... In the scriptures, he's following through, having concluded that exalting in the glory and the majesty of God. He continues and he says, therefore, he's turning to the church now. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God to present your bodies a living, and living and holy sacrifice. So what I wanted to point out first there in verse 1 is Paul's acknowledgement here of the necessity of grace in what he's saying. I mean, he's just exalted in the glory of God, the mystery of God, the, the unfathomable, unsearchable ways and counsels of God. And on the back of that, saying that all things are from him, for him, and to him, to him be glory forever. So then, by those mercies, by these mercies, make yourselves a living, holy and living sacrifice to God. I was thinking this week uh, in regards to that, but you think about this, and I think this is where a lot of folks get off track because you can, you can, you can conform in some ways to Christian principles, and you can decide that the Bible teaches good, sound, wise truth, and you can pour those truths. He's going to touch on this later. You can pour those truths in the old man 
and they won't manifest themselves the way they did in Paul's life. You won't say at the end of having embraced those truths as a moral principle, you won't say with Paul, oh, how, depth, how the depth of riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God and how unsearchable are his judgments. You will not exalt in the glory of God apart from the grace of God. It'll always produce a legalism. If you, if you pour it into the wrong container, it's affected by the container and it comes out the wrong way. And so I just wanted to pause to reinforce that Paul is saying here that I urge you, brethren, these are brothers in Christ, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God to do this. Now, he could mean my urgings are by the mercies of God, or he could mean you doing this or it will be by the mercies of God. But in either case, underneath it all is the mercy of God. And that's why you hear me so often speak of the mercy of God, because that's, that's singular in its source. Uh, that strikes me as well here, is that he says by the mercies of God, plural, but, but I think he's rooting that in the singular mercy of God in the person of Christ. From that fountain flow many mercies, one of which is, is adherence and, and conformity to what he's about to share with us. And so it's just an encouragement to Christians. Yes, study the scriptures. Yes, go through and systematize the biblical principles and receive them as the truth of God and critical for your sanctification. But receive them through this fountain of the mercy of God so that they might produce in you the fruit that honors God rather than the fruit of self-righteousness or the fruit of condemnation against others. So that's, to me, that's absolutely critical to this passage. The second the manifestation of that grace. In, us, in other words, what mercy has accomplished. He says there, I urge you, brethren, by the mercy of God, to present your bodies. I think he means there the whole of, the, of our existence, our fleshly bodies, our minds, our wills, our spirit, our emotions, our devotion, the entirety, the essence of who I am. Submit that, yield that over as it was, were as a living and holy sacrifice unto God. And to me, that's the manifestation of this grace. It produces that not out of compulsion, but here out of the willful, joyful presentation of our lives, our living, a living and holy. So he's given a description of the lives that we're living with this mercy that we turning over that. That's a willful thing. We shouldn't have to beat ourselves to do that against our own desires. And that's why mercy is so critical. If you set out and you say, okay, I'm going to do that, and you do that in your own strength, then it's going to be oppressive to you because you're going to run into the roadblock of your flesh every single day that you try to do that. And you're going to get frustrated, and either you're going to die to the flesh and, and do this joyfully and willfully and for the glory of God, or you're going to do it under compulsion and begrudgingly because the flesh is always fighting. And what you're likely to do in that moment is you're likely to adjust what it means to be living for God to accommodate those fleshly desires that you don't want to die to. That's why mercy is so critical in, the, in this. This is the manifestation of grace, is the joyful, willing, uh, joyful, willing presentation of our lives upon the sacrifice, upon the altar of God as a sacrifice, living and holy. 
It's also a manifestation of grace that that's acceptable to God. He says that in that, present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God. You realize, of course, that it's acceptable to God on the basis of mercy. In other words, if you do this apart from Christ, if you do this by your own merit and by your own strength, it'll never be acceptable to God. You can throw yourselves upon the altar all you want and you can conform your life to biblical principles. But if there is not the righteousness of Christ robing the believer by the mercy of Christ, no sacrifice from man, sinful man, will ever be acceptable to God. Even the Old Testament sacrifices were acceptable only on the basis ultimately of pointing towards that one sufficient sacrifice that would be acceptable. So, so by faith, God rendered back, as it were, the mercy of the cross back upon those sacrifices and fellowshiped and was in right relationship to those who honored that in that they were pointing towards Christ. The book of Hebrews makes that very clear. The blood of goats and bulls don't take away sin but they point to the one who takes away sin. So just remember when you, when you look at Romans 12 or really anywhere throughout the scripture and try to discern for you a list of characteristics that you ought to be pursuing, don't, don't forget to pursue those things through the mercies of God. Because even if you happen to achieve some of those things apart from mercy, you will distort those things and they will become a source of pride or religious pride in you. Notice he mentions there as well this, this acceptable sacrifice. He says, he translates that as your spiritual service of worship. I've, I've thought about that a lot today. The combination of those words, spiritual, obviously this is something that's done with the entirety of the, of the spirit of the Christian. That spirit, uh, uh, the spirit of the believer, but also the spirit that indwells in us. In other words, we're guided by the indwelling spirit of Christ and we are, we are serving in that spirit. So it's a spiritual, but it's also a service. It's a service. It's a rendering up of our body to be utilized or to be instrumental in the accomplishing of the will of God in the world. So it's a service. But then the two combined seem to be saying these amount to our worship. These are, they shouldn't be taken apart. In other words, sometimes we separate these things out. Well, I'm serving the Lord over here, but when we gather on Sunday morning, we say we're worshiping the Lord. But the believer's whole life given over unto God to be utilized by God, the entirety of their life is expressive of their worship of God. It is born of mercy, mercy and in our service and in our formal worshiping and singing praises to God, the entirety of our life is to be laid aside for the worship of God, whether through service, whether through song, whether through devotion. Uh, to me, that's, that's just been the thought that's ringing in my ears all day long. Uh, I want to be careful that I don't categorize my life into areas that are not worship because my whole life is to be put on the altar and sacrificed to God, where the aroma of my life whiffs up, as it were, to the nostrils of God and is pleasing to Him because it magnifies His mercy and the cross and it glorifies His majesty. The entirety of my life is to be that. If I'm working, if I'm driving a nail, if I'm driving a car, if I'm leading my family, if I'm praying with my wife, if I'm having my supper, 
my entirety of my life as a believer and one purchased by the grace of God is to manifest the grace of God in its living. And obviously that word holy gives the implication of being set aside. So those two things I think are foundational to everything else Paul's saying here. Now in verse 2, you think about this in terms of what we should resist and what we should reject as those who've offered up our bodies as a living sacrifice. Here's a big one. Here's what you reject. Conformity to the world. Conformity to the world. If you think about, this helps me with the word conform. If I have a glass, uh, say it's an hourglass shaped glass. And I pour water into that hourglass shape. That water is going to take the shape of the hourglass. In other words, it's going to fill every void. It's going to conform to the shape of the glass that I poured in. And Paul's saying for the believer, don't let your life being poured out into the world's mold and therefore conform to that mold. That's, that's what you and I, as those who've thrown our bodies onto the sacrificial altar, as it were, and praise and worship to God, that's the mandate for our lives. Do not, he's the, this is imperative, do not be conformed to this world. I think sometimes our problem in the church today is we don't know, we don't know what the world's form is. It's so natural to us, it doesn't feel like the world's form at all. And so we just naturally conform. This is what I mean by taking Christian truth and principles and pouring them into a vessel that's conformed to the world. It will not produce the same fruit because it's being evaluated in the world's mold. That's why the world doesn't understand the gospel. That's why they don't understand the things of God. That's why the world doesn't have spiritual discernment because they are trying to take the truths of God's word which are infinitely glorious and true and they're trying to interpret them with the equipment of the world and it doesn't work. And if somehow you decide that Christian principles are the best way to live your life and you pour them into a worldly conformed vessel, they will not produce the fruit that bears glory unto God. And I don't think they'll ultimately produce the fruit of a spiritual and godly, joyful life in the believer as well. So the thing we have to reject as those who have offered up ourselves is conformity to the world. And that's the first part of this. He's going to talk about transformation. I'm going to get to that. But I want to pause here because that means I need to be looking around in the world. I need to be discerning and prayerful and using the scriptures to come to bear on the ideologies and the formations of the world. I need to be able to discern this is a worldly form over here. This is a worldly vessel. These things are worldly. They are, they are rooted in and glorifying to the things of this world. They are magnifying and gratifying the pleasures of the fallen man. These are worldly things. Therefore, I shall not be conformed to this thing. And that's a real danger in a prosperous nation. Uh, I'm reading in Amos and studying through Amos now, and that was one of the, that was one of the issues with Israel and, and Judah even in his day, but they had come to a time of relative peace and prosperity. And they, and they don't seem to be seeking God at all. In fact, in their prosperity, perhaps there was the assumption that God has somehow by our prosperity endorsed our behavior and they drifted off into all sort of conformity with the world. 
And we are no less subject to that ourselves. So when you, when you find yourselves out in the world, ask yourself this, am I enjoying this the way the world does? To me, that's a, a real litmus test for me personally, because I can do things that other people enjoy. I enjoy kayaking and I enjoy fishing. Well, lost people enjoy kayaking and fishing and well. What is the distinction between how I enjoy it and how they enjoy it? That's a real litmus test for me to tell me whether or not in my enjoyment of these things, I'm being conformed to the world. I'm not enjoying it in a distinctly different way than they are. I can enjoy kayaking while I'm beholding the creation of God and magnifying the, 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 the mercy and the majesty of God in what I'm viewing. And, I'm, and I'm, it's a spiritual service, as it were, even in my enjoyment of it. The same with fishing. I can be admiring and acknowledging the presence of God in creation and the power manifested of God in creation. I can enjoy that in a very different way than the unbeliever. So I'm not saying I can't fish and not be conformed to the world, but I can't fish like the world fishes. I'm not saying I can't kayak and not be conformed to the world. I'm saying I can't kayak like the world kayaks. I can do a lot of things that people in the world do, but I can't do them like they do them, not and be transformed. And if I do them like they do them, I am being conformed to the world. And let me just say that happens incrementally. First of all, you were born in conformity with the world. You grew up most of your life in conformity to with the world. So the putting or the pulling away from conformity is going to rub against the grain. And even as a Christian, your instinct is to be in the conformity of the world. So it's not going to be an easy task to identify conformity and to resist and to reject it and to turn away. I will say this as well. As you do identify and as you do turn away from it, expect that the world will not like you as much. Because in your not conforming to the world, you are illuminating their conformity in an ungodly way. So you're bringing light into the darkness. So we're to resist that. We're to resist literally being shaped into the world's mold. But he gives us an alternative. Rather than be conformed to this world, what does he say? But be transformed. Transformed. He goes on to say, by the renewing of your mind. So in the Christian's mind... If somebody says, Larry, can you give me something from the Bible that will help me and I can work on and, and it will really weigh heavily into my Christian life and my Christian walk, here it is. Don't be conformed to the world. Figure out what conformity to the world looks like and as, a, as an alternative to that, be transformed. Not conformed, but transformed. You're, not coming, you're, you're, you're being turned into something else altogether in the new birth. The seeds of that have been sown in us. We are a new creation in Christ Jesus. So we're to be not conforming, but to be being, being transformed. And how do we do that? Uh, this is always from the very early days of my Christian life. This struck me and it told me something about the use of the mind and the intellect in the study of scriptures. Because he says here, this transformation will be taking place by the renewing of your mind. Don't mean to give us a new brain. I got the same brain I had when I was a lost person. What he's speaking of here primarily is the understanding, the renewing of your understanding, a complete transformation of your, of your worldview, as it were. 
This foundation that you've been standing on all of your life in conformity to the world, that gets tossed out, that gets rejected, and there's a transformational new view of everything, even yourselves. That's the, that renewing is what produces transformation and what guards against conformity to the world. I get nervous, and, I, and you've heard me say this before, but I was, there was a time in my life where I resisted emotion altogether because it was unreliable. And, and I was afraid of it because we're so, we're so, it's so subjective. I can, I can feel good at a football game, and I can feel good at church on Sunday morning. Whether I worship at the football game, it's just, it's just subjective and difficult to pin down. So, so early on, it's again, okay, what is true? What is true? And for a while, that, that bound me because I began to wonder, well, this is true, and I'm feeling this exuberation and exultation and what's true. But then I said, well, I can't, I can't express that. That's emotion. And so me, it was freed up. And this is, I think, where the Puritans helped me a lot in many ways, but the Scriptures mostly. But the truth, the transformation of of my life by the renewing of my mind produce a transformation of the whole life. Now the emotions, the emotions could follow the truth. I want, I want to be moved by the truth. And I want to be, I want to be disturbed by wickedness and evil and lies. I want to recognize them and feel indignation. I don't want to be a mindless robot spitting out doctrine I want to be transformed by the renewing of my mind through the instrument of the truth of God's Word and by the Spirit of God's dwelling within, giving illumination to those truths. This, is, this kind of comes back to what I'm saying in regards to trying to put Christian principles, religion in a worldly vessel. What's missing is that spiritual illumination and realization of the weightiness of those truths. And it produces a different thing altogether. It doesn't produce worship and, and, the, and the majesty and the recognition of the glory of God. It doesn't, it doesn't produce that fruit. Every time, almost every time, that will produce a legalistic self-righteousness that views, whether it would say it openly or not, that its acceptance has somehow based upon their sufficiency in keeping those principles religiously. And that's a miserable place to be. And by the way, you'll be a miserable person to be around for the true Christian because he'll feel that in a moment. You'll feel that in a moment. So we're to resist conformity and embrace this transformation. In verse 3, a lot of these, I think, follow this transformation as well, but these are some other things involved in this grace that manifests itself in our putting, throwing, putting ourselves upon the altar as a sacrifice to God. Another here, I think, in verse 3 is a sound and proper view of self. Uh, I think informed by faith. He says, For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think. You've heard me say this before, but he's not saying that there isn't a way you ought to think about yourself. Uh, I, I remember early in my Christian life, I thought that was the goal, to think nothing of myself, to be oblivious to myself. It's not what Paul says here. He says, I don't, 
think not more highly of yourself than you are. So there is, a, there is a way you ought to think of yourself. Don't exceed that. But don't fall below that either. One's self-flatulation. The other is self-exaltation. Neither of those is correct. The Christian that walks around destroying themselves all the time aesthetically is, is falling under a right view of self. The one that runs around self-righteous and exalting themselves is thinking far too highly of himself than they ought. There is a way you ought to think of yourself. And I think that is informed by faith, as he goes on to say, but to think so as to have sound judgment, it involves sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. So this right thinking of oneself is rooted, first of all, in sound Sound, he says, judgment, and that takes us back to renewing of the mind, the understanding, a sound discernment in regards to who I am. We get that from the scriptures. And the second is that the way I think about myself is informed by faith. I read in the scriptures, thus saith the Lord, this is what Christ has accomplished in my life. This is who I am. This is, this is my value in the grand scheme of things and to the glory of God. Therefore, by faith, I will live as though this is my value. This is, this is what God has done in my life. I exist for his glory. He bought me. I owe my all to him. This is the way I will live my life. There is no merit in me. There is no deserving in me. I am a recipient of the free grace of God Almighty in Christ Jesus. And this is where I will live. I will live neither under that nor beyond that. This is where I live and the glory shall be his. You want to be on the ark for sacrificial offering of praise and your service of worship to God, holy and acceptable to God, then think rightly of yourself. Don't think lower, lower than what you are and don't think beyond what you are. Understand who you are in Christ and let, him, let the glory be directed to him. In verse 4 and 5, it's a part of this transformation as well, I think, is a recognition of and a functioning within the body of Christ. Notice he says, for just as we have many members in one body, he's speaking of these members of my body, just as, I'll say it this way, just as I have many members in my body, I have ears, eyes, nose, throat, uh, hands, legs, fingers, toes, I have many members, yet none of those members have the same function. Then he, makes, then he carries the analogy to this, verse 5, so we... Brethren, who are many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. So that, that, had, that weighs into right thinking about myself. And here's, here's what's striking to me about the, the wisdom of God and the inspiration of Scripture here. Because do you see the dynamic happening here? He says, he gives the analogy, though I have many members, I'm one body. Then he says, so we who are many are one body in Christ. Yes, we are. And then he says, and individually members of it. Well, are we individuals or one body? So being one body doesn't eliminate individuality. And, so, and that's, that's, com, that's a, almost a communism, <laughs> that to eliminate the individual and view the, the group as a whole. Well, there's a guard here against that. Because Paul says individually members of this one body. So everyone in this room who's a believer is a member of the body of Christ. But there's not, that doesn't, that doesn't mean we're a bunch of carbon copies. 
We are individually distinct, individually distinct from one another, members of that body. And oh, that struck me this morning. What a beautiful diversity in unity. That's what's stunning about that. How is it other than by supernatural, the grace of God and the mercy of God, that you can put, pull together individuals and have perfect harmony because of their common union with Christ, all the while each remains their distinct, uh, their distinct individuality. I didn't become you when I became a Christian. And you didn't become me. But in Christ, we came together. And we benefited from what Christ had created each of us to be for his glory. And as we work together and as you come together and more and more come together with all of their gifts and their distinctions that God created with them, we become even more diverse and more reflective of the infinite glory of God. That's just a beautiful passage of Scripture. Yes, Paul says, I'm one body and I got all kinds of members. So too is the Christ. So too is the body of Christ. There is one body. It's the body of Christ. It's not your body. It's not my body. It's the body of Christ. But each of you individually have been united and joined to that body of Christ. And therefore, in that union, joined to one another. And so I'm tacking this on to right thinking about myself. I'm not the singular, most glorious purchase of Jesus on the earth. And if you put me in the middle of a church somewhere, I'm not to have a priority there because I'm somehow special. I am an individual united by grace in the body of Christ. And I should later, he says, fellowship with the lowly and enjoy the fellowship with the lowly because I need not exalt myself because all the glory for our existence and our even our existence in life, particularly our existence in the church, belongs to God. It makes me say that there's no room for jockeying for the exalted positions in churches. There really isn't. There's one exalted head of the church, and that is Christ. And he adds individually to the body as he sees fit according to his purposes. And so there may be others who come with all sorts of different gifts. Some may be more public, some may be more behind the scenes. But every one of those is equally necessary for the magnifying of Christ and the power of Christ in that gathering of believers. So Paul says, don't think more highly of yourself than you ought. But think with sound wisdom, sound judgment, and, and according to the measure of faith. Understand that, yes, you, in, you exist individually, but you've been united in a body that brings all those other individuals together into Christ. Distinct from one another, but all finding their, their union and their joy in the same central head who is Christ. That's what it means to put yourself on the altar. That's what it means not to be conformed to this world, but to be transformed. To be transformed. That's a very different thing than conformity. So we embrace and pursue these things. There's also an exercising and an encouraging of the use of spiritual gifts involved in this. Verse 6, he says, since we have gifts that differ according to the grace. So here again, grace. Grace is the origin of these gifts. And they differ just as we differ. We're individuals. Each of us is to exercise them accordingly. According to what? He just said it, grace. So if you have a, if you have a gift 
And you do as a believer, when you gather with the body of Christ, you're to exercise that gift according to the foundation of the gifts giving, which is grace. So if you have a gift and you're exercising it ungraciously or harshly or bitterly or oppressively, then you're not using properly exercising the gift. Grace is to be the river upon which the gift is is floating, as it were. So that's part of being on the sacrificial altar before God. It's to come together as individuals in the body of Christ where there are many other individuals, each gifted differently according to the purpose of the Lord, but each exercising those gifts according to this undergirding grace whereby they become encouragement and edifying to the other believers and their gifts to you as well. You ever think about your gift like that? That God, God gifted you like this, like you're gifted, not for your benefit at all. He gifted you purely for the benefit of every other believer around you and everyone you come into contact with. Your gift exists for, for God to use you instrumentally to bless and edify the lives of the others. And you can say, well, what about me? Well, he gifted that other believer for you. <laughs> That's what they're there for. None of us get our gifts to exercise them according to our own pleasure and our own agenda and our own desires. We are are different individuals. God gifts us differently according to his purpose for the church. And the utilization of that gift is to be for the edifying and the building up of the body of Christ. Now, I'm not suggesting that you don't get a blessing when you exercise your gift, especially if you're exercising it with grace. You You ever exercise... Identify your gift in your mind, one of them. You may have multiple. Identify your, in your mind that gift. Have you ever had the experience of exercising that completely without reservation for the good of another, even at your own expense? You remember a time like that? I hope you do. Because the, the times that I've experienced anything like that, that's when I understood, that's what this is for. That's what this is for. It wasn't for praise. It wasn't for acknowledgement. It wasn't for affirmation. It was a, it was a gift given to be utilized through a, through a conduit which God chose me to be in that moment. And it was to design to edify another believer. When you exercise your gifts that way, then you'll understand what the spiritual gift was for. And I don't think you'll be tempted ever to take some pride in that or some, some self-exaltation in the exercise of that gift. Exercising and encouraging the use of these spiritual gifts. That was another thing that struck me about that. Each one is, of us is to exercise them accordingly. If prophecy goes on and talks about different gifts and how they're exercised. But here's the interesting thing. He is to exercise those in the context of receiving edification from the exercise of others of their gifts. And to me, that's, that's important because that establishes a, a harmony and a, and a codependency, as it were, and a unity within the body of Christ. Yes, I am to utilize my gift for the good of the body, but I am also by my gift not to exclude or to somehow isolate any other gifts from being used. You've heard me say this before, but I'm amazed at how churches will sometimes gather around a certain gift. I know what people mean, and I appreciate what they mean, but I hear people say, like, we're a missions church. 
or, or we're, a, we're a worshiping church. We're a singing church. And to me, when I hear that, I, I don't think much different from saying we're a biker church or a cowboy church. Because it seems as though you, you set down that gift and prioritized it to the point that it draws everybody from the community with those gifts. And they all get together and they're all rejoicing because they love to exercise the gift and they love to hear the gift exercise. But what you've got in that case is a church that is completely out of balance and is lacking of those spiritual gifts, that those less honorable members, which Paul talks about, that are critical for the life of that church. So, so if you're in a church and you have a gift, be careful that you don't surround yourself with people with like gifts all the time and exclude all the other gifts from being exercised because they are instruments for your edification as well. This is what it means. This is what it means to throw myself upon the altar of God, holy living and holy, acceptable to God, and my spiritual service of worship. This is the life dedicated and devoted wholly to God and to God's purposes in the world. This is what it looks like. This is the kind of thinking, transformation of the mind and the renewing of the thinking that has to take place in the believer. Uh, I don't have time, but I went through each of these, but think about some of these. These are evidences or manifestations of a renewed mind. If you have a, according to the prophecy of his faith, he says in, in regards to exercise of the gifts, verse 7, if service, my conclusion here, at least in verses 7 through 8, is that he lists out these particular gifts, service, teaching, exhortation, giving, leading, showing mercy. And he kind of shifts a little bit there, but those are just a representative of the gifts. But what he's saying is there is a, there are the gift. Yes, he's identifying some, but then there is the exercise of the gift. They have to, they have to be harmony, harmonized. They have to be consistent with one another. That's what he's saying. If service and is serving, let him serve. If you, if you happen to be the teaching gift, don't exclude the servers. <laughs> They're there for a purpose. And if you happen to have the service gift, don't ignore the teachers. They're there for you as well. So he's saying, if, you're, if your gift is service, then serve. And in the body of Christ, individually, and as we gather together, let the gifted servers serve. Don't exclude them from serving. Don't cut them off from serving. For it is necessary for your health and your maturity that they serve and exercise the gift God has given them and brought into that particular fellowship. Think of the same way in the others. And he who teaches is teaching. Don't exclude the teacher. Don't say he's over your head or don't say he's under your, under your intellect level. Don't ignore the teacher. If he has the gift of teaching, make room for it to be exercised because it's necessary for your edification. The same as well, the exhorter, not the teacher here, but the exhorter, those who take the teaching and the truths of God's word and, and do what I'm doing here, exhorting further others to follow Christ and know the fullness and the joy of Christ. If you got an exhorter among you, if you got them in your family, if you got an exhorter, don't exclude them, don't shut them out. We don't like all that emotion. It's too loud. Uh, me and David Sherrill joke all the time about uh, the old King James preacher, and we'd always say, if, if, if he was really hot emotionally, David or me would say to one another, did you notice he had his thumb hanging over the edge of that Bible? <laughs> 
And they had this mentality. They'd hold that Bible and they'd just get on with it, you know. And some people, uh, Baptists particularly, we get scared of that, and rightly so, because it's been so exploited and abused in so many ways. But if God has given an exhorter in the body of Christ, make room for the exhortation. It's necessary for you. It's necessary for you servers and teachers and givers and mercy showers. You need exhortation. You need teaching. You need all these things. About giving there, he says, one in verse 8, the one who gives with liberality. Certainly make room for the giver. Most churches nowadays would say amen to that. We want a whole church of givers. Some of the prosperity gospel preachers of our day would say things like that. They want the whole congregation to have the gift of giving. And it just so happens they want the gifts to come to them. But if you have gifts, givers who are gifted in their giving and, and generous by instinct and by nature to the things of God, make room for them. Don't, don't make them feel ashamed. They don't have to exalt themselves and they don't have to wave their money in the air as they're coming forward for pride's sake. But if they have a heart to give and the, God has given them capacity to give, let them give. It's necessary for you. It may be a believer who is a servant or a teacher or an exhorter who can't afford to eat this week. The, the giver provides, God provides for the needs through the givers. Yes, we all ought to give. We ought to be, generosity ought to be a principle of the Christian life. But there are, God, there are those that God specifically gifts with a spirit of generosity and a spirit of liberality in their giving. Make room for them in the church. This is the only one, perhaps, in our day that somebody would, most people would say, amen. What about the one who leads? Make room for the leaders. In fact, he tells them, when you lead, do it with diligence. Don't be slack about leadership. If God has gifted the church with leaders, make room for the leaders. Hey, encourage the leaders. Tell them you're praying for them. Help them. <laughs> Make room for the leaders. Don't cut out leaders. We just want to, you ever been to a brethren? You ever watched a brethren service? The Quakers? It's like nobody's leading. I mean, it's like there's this repulsion against anybody taking a lead role in there. We're all equal and we're all brethren. Well, I get the idea that there is a harmony in the body of Christ and individually we're members of it, but God provides in the church for those who, who are in this capacity, the leaders in the church. Make room for them. Don't exclude godly leadership. And leaders, those who are leaders here, myself included, lead with diligence. Uh, when I hear the word diligence, by the way, I think of consistency. Not just leading all the time and leading 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 as I should be leading, but leading consistently. Am, am I employing the same principles in my decision-making today that I did yesterday? Am I bringing the same principles to bear in this decision as I did this decision, or am I changing according to the person or the circumstances involved? Am I, am I waffling all over the place in regards to decision-making, or am I bringing biblical truth to bear in every situation, no matter how far away from me they are, or how close, or what the situation is here or over there? Leaders lead diligently, and churches make room for that kind of leadership. The church by our day ought to be exhausted with the absence of that kind of leadership, you know? Because it's been all over the map for so long that people have gotten cynical in regards to leadership generally in the world, in the nation, but even in the church. Because leadership, diligent leadership, 
when it has been applied, there hadn't been room for it. A lot of times they run them off because they are diligent and they are consistent. And so many times, so he finishes here, the one who shows mercy, which we all should do, but some people have an extraordinary unction or gift, as it were, to, to be inclined or most instinctively merciful. I, I love it when there's a difficult meeting or a difficult thing and somebody stands up and I, I know when they say this that they have this gift of mercy sometimes, but they say, let he who is guilty cast the first stone. Well, they're way misapplying that passage maybe in that circumstance, but it indicates to me that their instinct here was to be merciful. And if that's rooted in you having been a recipient of that mercy, that's a wonderful thing. Just be careful that it doesn't get distorted and become a non a, a, a tolerable or a tolerating atmosphere, a tolerating of sin atmosphere. But he says here, the one who shows mercy, do it with cheerfulness. We need room in the church. We need to make room in the church for cheerful mercy givers. Merciful, cheerful, merciful people. And sometimes, you ever notice that sometimes mercy is giving begrudgingly? Uh, well, I, I, I'm not going to hold you to account for that. <laughs> Because the Bible says I shouldn't, but you can bet I'll watch you like a hawk. I'm keeping my eye on you. That's not a cheerful mercy giver. A merciful person gets sinned against, and they, they give mercy in that case. that might manifest itself in a confrontation, and they don't respond, but yet there's a heart inclined and instinctively leaning towards being merciful. And they legitimately try to come back next week and approach that person with a whole new light. They still try to view them as objectively as they can. And as he says later, as much as lies with them, they try to be at peace with that person. And they genuinely want this person to, through this mercy, receive not only their forgiveness, but the forgiveness of God. And that they might find reconciliation with God and peace with God. That's their earnest desire. Boy, we need a church full of those kind of mercy givers, don't we? And we need to make room for them because they're need, that's needful for you and me. If there are no mercy givers in the church, you and I are in big trouble because sooner or later one of us is going to step out of line and say something unthoughtful in a careless moment that wounds someone else's feelings. And if there's no mercy givers in the church, we're in big trouble. Because we're all, as good Christian people, going to bury that resentment and we're going to live with that and our fellowship is going to get colder and colder and more and more divided and the farther out we go, pretty soon we'll just be a gathering of people who very rarely even talk to anybody. Anybody ever been to a church where the tension was so thick that as soon as the service was over on Sunday morning, the building was completely evacuated in 10 minutes? Nobody there. Everybody went straight to their cars, got in there and got out of there as fast as they could. If you've ever been in an environment like that, you know what I'm talking about. That started somewhere. And somebody didn't make room in the church for mercy. And see, all these things, and you can go through this passage as well. This is what I was doing today, but in verse 9, let love, love ought to be a quality of the body of Christ. We need room for love in the church. And let that be a true love, not, not hypocritical. I think he ties that in, by the way, in verse 9, cling to what is good, hate what is evil. I think that's linked to his understanding of love, Let that kind of love. Not a tolerant, permissive love that lets sin and wickedness go, 
but a love that embraces what is right, encourages and encourages and fans the flames of good things and confronts graciously and firmly evil things. That kind of love. We need that love in the church as well. And you can go down the list and do this yourself in your own study time. But my point tonight is that's what this looks like. That's what renewing the mind looks like and the kind of renewing the mind and understanding that results in true transformation. This is what it looks like in practice. And part of renewing your mind is, is to read this and say, well, they ain't working out that way in my life. And that's, that's the moment of confrontation with the truth. That's the red flag moment that says, well, it ought to be. Why isn't it? And then there comes the dying to self and the crucifixion, as it were, and the strain and the sorrow and the grieving and the, and the mourning to get you from that conformity to the world to this sort of renewed thinking. And then you'll begin to notice that even without reading these, these things are getting manifested in your life as the renewed mind lends itself towards a fuller transformation and these, here's my dream in life, <laughs> that the things that Paul gives as imperatives here would become for me almost second nature, almost a reactionary impulse that I would, and you, and that we would be so transformed that the things Paul is laying down as imperatives would be, would be where we naturally went to. We would naturally love without hypocrisy. We would naturally make room for service and teaching and exhortation and giving and mercy showing. That these things would be natural to us. That we would have a naturally right sound view of ourselves. Not, not above and not below. And that we would see ourselves as one although recognizing that we are individuals amongst that one. That these things would be, be inherent in our thinking. And that's the goal. I'm pretty sure I'm not going to arrive there before I leave this world. But that's no justification for me not to be pursuing that. And here's why I think we don't. And I'll close with this. Because it's hard. And it hurts. And it shines lights in places in your heart that you don't want light shining. Because it's just too difficult to be transformed there. That's why we're so reluctant to go that way. But I pray that we won't be that. I mean, God knows these things. Our neighbors may not know them, and they may not even have to know them. But God knows them, and God sees them. And when we yield to him, then he shines the truth of his word and the light of his word into those dark recesses, and he brings about this renewed mind. And our transformation follows that and is indicative of that as well. Stand with me tonight. In some ways, I think in my brain, <laughs> uh, this was almost linked to Amos and the Minor Prophets because as I did an overview of the Minor Prophets from 30,000 feet and they sounded really repetitive and this is kind of what come to mind. It's like you took, you took the law of God, you systematized it, you added, uh, added to, <clears throat> to it all these safety barriers lest you violate it. And there was no renewing of the mind. And you always lost it. You eventually forsook it altogether. 
And even worse, you did the very things that it commanded not to do. You made false gods and you started worshiping them over and over and over. The period of the judges, same way. Israel would fall into idolatry. God would send a deliverer. They'd come up for 20, 30, 40 years. They'd fall back into the idolatry over and over and over throughout their history. Why? Because they were trying to put Christian truce, God truce into earthen vessels or into conformed vessels. And it never works. It never works. You can't sustain that. There has to be a transformation. And I think that's what Paul means when he says, be not conformed to this world. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, thank you for your grace, for your mercy that makes us aware of this truth. But Father, also that equips us to strive to be transformed. Lord, we recognize that this is a matter of grace and a matter of mercy. We cannot accomplish this thing in our own strength. And if we were to try, we would simply be pouring Christian truce into a worldly conformed vessel. So, Father, we pray that you would bring the new birth, the new man, the new creation to bear, and that we might be more prevalent in our lives. And by the renewing of our minds and our thinkings through the truth of your word, that you might transform us as well that these things may not be strange to our ears, that they would seem completely normal and completely reasonable in regards to the new mind, as alien as they may seem to the old. So we ask for your help, Lord, and we pray that you would accomplish these things for your name's sake and for your glory. Lord, I'm convinced that the nearer we get to you, the, the more the display of your glory matters to us above everything in our own lives and in the lives of those around us. We just pray that that might be displayed here amongst this fellowship of believers. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.